Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. On today's episode, we're joined by the Conservative MP Mark Harper to discuss his journey from Chief Whip under David Cameron to Rebel under Boris Johnson. So we're in the parliamentary office of Mark Harper, former minister, chief whip, turned some say chief rebel to talk about uh, uh, his um, yeah his life, his career, his recent sort of trajectory. I think I think it'd be good if we started sort of with um, the recent difficulty the government got itself into with the standards vote. I mean, imagine for a moment you were still chief whip mm-hmm. and that sort of problem crossed your desk. How would you have dealt with it? differently or need how how do you deal with that kind of situation as chief whip well i think let let me do this two separately on that specific issue i mean i think i'd have done what i did actually not being in the government Uh, first thing i'd have done was go and get the report and read it and i i plowed my way through the whole lot uh, and to see what the facts were And, and frankly reading the report very clear owen had broken the rules on a number of occasions and frankly i think the normal process should have been followed which is you know we don't make a huge deal about these things there's a there was a clear recommendation for a sanction Uh, i think the sanction was merited by what had happened the committee had taken all the evidence they'd listened to to his views so this idea that somehow there wasn't an appeal he'd had a full opportunity to set out his case and they had taken into account the tragic circumstances of his wife having taken her life when they were thinking about the sanction and they had tempered punishment with some mercy, which I think is appropriate. And I think, frankly, the motion should have just been put before the House. And normally with these things, it goes through without the House dividing, without us all having to vote on it. And frankly, if that's what had happened, I don't think it would have got very much attention. Uh, Owen would have been almost all the way through his suspension. Clearly, his reputation would have taken a knock, but not, I think, a, a career-ending one. And I don't think, given what had happened to his family, I don't think the voters of North Shropshire would have recalled him. So that's that's what I would have recommended. And and I think, thinking back to when I was chief, I think that's what the prime minister I served, David Cameron. I think that's what he would have. He that's the advice he would have accepted. And uh, and I think we wouldn't have ended up where we ended up. And so I'm noticing your, your chief whip mug on proud display. And as you say, you were chief whip under David Cameron. And that's a, a role that that isn't so public facing, but really crucial mm-hmm. to how things work behind the scenes. I think our 
listeners and viewers would be really interested to know what that job is like and especially because I suppose there's a bit of a shadowy reputation around that job from things like House of Cards is that the reality of it do you have lots of dirt on all your colleagues no um, it, it, it's quite it's quite interesting I think Michael Dobbs uh, Lord Dobbs yeah. as he as he now is having written the sort of House of Cars and you've got the British version for, for perhaps um, your older listeners and, and perhaps the younger ones have gone back to look at it and obviously you've got the, the newer American version. The uh, thing I would say, there's, there's, as far as I can tell, there's, there's a lot more sex in House of Cards, the movie, as it were, than there is in reality. Uh, and it's not anywhere as exciting. But no, I mean, it's interesting. The whip's role is basically to keep the show on the road, keep the wheels turning. There's an important role, the phrase you often hear about usual channels, that's the the, the government chief whip talking to the opposition chief whip about parliament so that, that parliament's queued up properly, people know what's going on, you, you, you get the right debates, the government gets its business, there's that tension where the government gets its, there's an acceptance, the government gets its business through if it has a majority, but the government also accepts that the opposition has a certain role as well. So you get opposition days, you get time for backbench debates. There's a bit of give and take about when these things happen. It doesn't, there's, there's no, there's, we're not, it's not without tension, but there's a sort of a, a way that you try and keep the show on the road. And some, sometimes both the opposition and government chief whips have to manage the rest of the government to, to keep that sensible balance. You also have a sort of an HR function, sort of pastoral care for colleagues, helping colleagues with issues. But yes, you are trying to get the government's business. But I think in the modern world, many, many people will have watched the play um, uh, from the 70s uh, that James Graham wrote, This House. And I don't think those whipping techniques are, would be as effective now because I just don't think, I don't think you can bully people. And I, I think you've largely got to take people with you and make good arguments. And I'm afraid if, if you try and browbeat people into doing things, it might work once. But if people are browbeaten into doing something and it goes horribly wrong, as we saw over the standards vote, you might have got them through the lobby on that occasion, but they will remember the next time you ask them to do something difficult, they'll think, well, how did that work out last time? And so I think you've got to take people with you. And, and actually, if you're... And, and the other thing people don't realise, it's a two-way street. So, yes, your job is to deliver the government's business, but it's also to listen to MPs, feed that back to the Prime Minister ultimately and to other ministers and if there's a real problem it's about listening to people as well as telling and, and sometimes and I think on the standards vote that's the bit that went horribly wrong. If you have to really crowbar people into doing something you perhaps ought to ask yourself whether what it is you're asking them to do is the wisest course um, and, and I'm, I'm sure that was fed back. I mean I was one of those that made my views very clear privately and I only really spoke in the debate because they weren't the private views we weren't listened to. Well, you must have an extraordinary amount of insight into party management and the relationship between the Prime Minister and his MPs. I'm wondering, not just on the standards vote, but more generally, how you think that has gone. There have been like quite a few mm -hmm. U-turns over the past year. Watching it not as chief whip anymore, how do you think the government has been handling those sorts of things? Well, I think on... I suppose there's two different categories. On, on COVID measures, I think there's a, a on quite a lot of it, there's a, even, even where people don't agree, I think people have been willing to cut the government some slack because it has been very difficult and we've all been confronting, you know, a new virus, lots of changing facts as things have gone through. And so I think some of the things that have gone wrong and not been ideal, people have, have you know, given people the benefit of the doubt because it has been very difficult. It's not been, it's not been like anything anyone's had to confront before. 
Um, I think on some of the non-COVID related things, there's a bit less tolerance for things not being done properly. And I think my view is it's a bit like I said in my speech in the House. I do think, you expect a former Chief Whip to say this, the team captain does uh, should be able to expect and should be able to command the loyalty of backbenchers for, for policies and, and, and other ministers should be able to as well. And that's a sort of starting position. But what comes with that is backbenchers should expect that ministers think things through, look at, make as soundly based a decision as possible. And that's what, you know, if you're going to follow decisions, you expect th that work to be done. And then frankly, if on some occasions things go horribly wrong, the person that's made the mistake needs to front up, apologise, take responsibility, and then frankly people can row in behind, you know, whatever reverse apology has to happen. And the reason why the standards thing, I think, was, was went so wrong was because it wasn't the right decision in the first place, but we then had a period where it wasn't clear who, well, no one took responsibility for it, and then eventually the Prime Minister did, to be fair, accept that it was his responsibility, but we still didn't get an apology and, and any sense of... So it made it very difficult for colleagues because those that had done what they were asked didn't really have a very good answer to people that said, well, why did you do that thing on one day? And then the government's policy changed, you know. So, I mean, although I was a rebel on the day I voted against the government, by the next day, uh, the government's position actually had changed and had followed my lead and I was actually bang in line with what the government's policy was. So that just made it very difficult for all those colleagues that had done what the government... They never got given a very good explanation that they could use as to, well, why did you have one view the first day and then the government's position completely pivoted? Well, what do you say to people? It, it, you know, and, and I think that does damage trust and I think the government, as I've said um, this week, the government needs to work to rebuild that and you, you can rebuild it, but you, you have to put a lot of effort into it. Part of the unique difficulty of the Chief Whip's job is unlike every other job in the government where when you disagree with Downing Street you're going, well look, I don't agree with you for principled or for ideological or delivery based reasons. Uh, the job of the Chief Whip is sometimes they have to go, actually look, you can't do this, the parliamentary party won't, won't wear that. How when you had to, you know, when Downing Street wanted something and backbenchers didn't for whatever reason, how did you manage that sort of unique relationship between the Chief Whip and Downing Street when you were doing it? Well, you're right. It is one of those slightly odd jobs where you're, if, if, the, if the thing's working properly, you should be in all of the key meetings that involve Parliament. So, and you're, and you're not there necessarily, I mean, you will have a view about the policy, but your role is to not necessarily have a view from first principles on the policy, but to really explore, can you get it through Parliament? Can you get it through with what sort of level of, of damage? Is it, is it worth it? compared to how hard it's going to be to get it through. And sometimes you, you are the lonely person in the room where the Prime Minister, you know, when I was there, Prime Minister David Cameron and obviously worked very closely with the then Chancellor George Osborne. They sort of very much run the government as a team. And you might have lots of other very clever, well-qualified people in the room. They all think something's a really good idea. And you have to be the sort of party pooper who puts your hand up and goes, mm, I don't think this is going to fly. And sometimes that's not <laughs> greeted warmly. And then you have to take people through why you think that, what information have you got? You know, sometimes, and sometimes you've not had a chance to you know, ask people their views. Sometimes you can test policy with, with colleagues, but sometimes it's your gut, it's your judge, it's judgment. Uh, and sometimes... You, you set out your arguments and, you, and it's your judgment and, so, and then you've got to persuade them that your judgment's right. And, and the thing I always had that we didn't always end up agreeing, but they always listened. 
and you had a thinking out loud session where they might end up landing in a different place, but you felt your views had been listened to. And then ultimately, Prime Minister makes a decision and then your job's to go ahead and deliver it. And you're happy to do that as long as you've been listened to. You know, even if maybe they haven't necessarily agreed with your decision. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. If you're enjoying The New Statesman podcast, you might also like The New Statesman's international news podcast, World Review, which is now published twice weekly. Here's our US editor, Emily Tamkin, to tell you more. Thanks, Anoush. That's right. Every Thursday, we unpack the most significant stories in world affairs, and every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Make sure you never miss an episode. Just search World Review in your podcast app and subscribe. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Moving on a little bit from your days as Chief Whip, I'm really interested to ask you about in 2019, having had this role sort of in the background but the, at the centre of government, you decided to stand for leader of the Conservative Party, so you stood against Boris Johnson and, and so on. I'm fascinated to, to know what that experience was like and, and what, what prompted your decision to stand. Had you thought about it for a while? Yeah, so I I, ha- I hadn't been in Theresa May's government, mm. and and you'll remember very clearly that period, particularly post the twenty seventeen election when she lost the majority she'd inherited from David Cameron, um, was quite bumpy. And as a as a backbencher, you you could sort of look at things perhaps a little bit less. You weren't in the in the firing line actually inside government, and you could watch what was going on. And I, and I just felt with my experience in government. And the role is the, the interesting thing about the chief whip job is you're, it's one of the few jobs as well where you you look at the whole of the government sort of holistically. You're not in a departmental silo. And I thought there were a number of areas where I could bring something to the party. And and I set out very clearly what how I thought we could deal with the Brexit issue. And, and you know set those out with colleagues. And as you know, it didn't last very long. But I'm glad I did it because I, one of the things I'm very keen on is. Uh, I think my central thing was a Conservative Party that's for people from backgrounds like mine. You know, I've come from a working class family, went to a state comprehensive, no one in my family went to university. I'm the first person that did. And I want the Conservative Party to be for people like me and for people who want to get on and, and widen opportunities. So I made, I made those arguments. Um, but I think it's fair to say, given where we were at when the leadership election happened, we were in sort of, you know, break the glass in an emergency and... and you know, we just had the Euro- you know we'd had the European elections where we'd come fourth or fifth or something disastrously disastrously awful, uh, and and that's why people went you know went with with Boris Johnson fundamentally. It was to to 
they saw him, the party saw him as the best person to, to get Brexit um, sorted out and you can have a conversation about is Brexit done or not, but you know, that was the job effectively and we did it and he went about that in a, 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 a way. I'd set out my thing and the party went with him, which is absolutely fine. So, but that's why I did it. But it was useful because it also forces you to think through, which may be how I've ended up being a teensy bit rebellious. It also forces you to think through what do you think about things? And it's, it's one of those rare occasions where it's not what does somebody else think, it's not, what, not what the party thinks or the prime minister or the cabinet. It's what do you think? And you think everything through. And then because you've then thought everything through, when subsequently the government doesn't always do what you think is the right thing, you have to just decide how much you care about it. And you know, no one agrees with that party about absolutely everything. I mean, I didn't agree with the government about everything when I was in it. And no, no one does. And it's a balance. You have to just decide what you care about. And, um, and the reason why I've, on the, like, the thing I've mostly uh, rebelled on has been, uh, has been on COVID. And it's partly been about the policy, but it's also been about how you treat Parliament. And I fundamentally believe you make better decisions if you bring them to Parliament and you have to lay out the evidence and you're tested and you have to answer questions and ministers are held to account. You make be- That makes better decisions happen, even though it's annoying and even though it takes a bit of time and even though I'm sure ministers don't always enjoy it, you get better decisions. And the Labour Party hasn't been asking any of those difficult questions. And, and even if, frankly, the Labour Party ended up agreeing with the government, it's still the job of the opposition to test and challenge the government, even if it fundamentally ends up agreeing with it. And they just haven't been doing that on COVID. They've basically given the government a blank check. They've agreed things before they've even seen them. And someone had to do that scrutiny work. And it kind of fell to, to me and my group of colleagues who've been challenging the government. So you've kind of felt like you were doing Keir Starmer's job for him, in a sense, well, on that? Well, doing the job that is all MPs actually should do, because all MPs are supposed to hold the government to account. And, and actually, in some ways, if you're a Conservative MP and you want the government to be successful and you want it to do a great job, you want ministers to make good decisions, actually, I care, you know, in a way, I care more that ministers are put through their paces and make good decisions and we're successful, the Labour Party actually just wants to, you know, ultimately does really want the government to fail because that's how it thinks it's going to get into power. I want the government to succeed and I think you do that by making ministers up their game, to be honest, even though they probably wouldn't thank me for it. You talked a bit about how you thought the process of running for leader is part of why you've become more rebellious. One of your predecessors as chief once said, yeah, the, someone said to me, the problem with once someone rebels once, right, you know, the yeah, they, the taboo is broken and they're no longer sort of scared of the consequences. Could you talk us a bit through like your first, the first time you rebelled, what was it like for you? Did you have that sort of sense of kind of crossing a Rubicon when you did it or did it feel sort of quite natural? Um, well, it was a bit weird because the first time I ever voted against sort of my party was, was when Theresa May was Prime Minister and it, it was on her Brexit uh, deal because I didn't think it was Brexit properly because we were going to stay in, you remember, we were going to stay in the customs union and the single market and I basically felt that wasn't really leaving. So effectively, my first rebellion was, was one I share with the current Prime Minister because he voted against her deal twice as well, same as me, and he voted for it the third time. For the same reason I did, was we both feared we wouldn't end up leaving at all. So that was the first time I did, and I did think about it very hard. It was the, it was the first time I had voted against the government, um, and I did think about it very carefully. It was a big decision for the country, and I think the fact that I wasn't the sort of person that people automatically put into the rebel camp, it, it you know, made a bit of a difference when I, when I did it. Um, but I don't think it's, it's not, it's not made me suddenly want to do it on everything. I mean, the, the only 
uh, up until on, on the social care thing, the only other thing I'd effectively rebelled on, on more than one occasion, but it's basically been on COVID. So although it's been on a number of votes, it's basically been on some differences, a different approach to, to how we deal with that. So it's been those two things largely uh, in, terms of, in terms of big things. And then I had a, a slight difference of opinion on, on um, social care. But on everything else, I'm absolutely full square behind the government. And actually on, on some issues, I've been out there batting for, you know, things like making sure we remember the value of controlling the public finances and, and being fiscally responsible. And, you know, difficult decisions like putting up taxes, the, the, the health and social care levy. I mean, I found that very uncomfortable, but I strongly support it because if you're going to make a big spending commitment, you can't just keep borrowing money forever. So on issues like that, I've been prepared to go out on the airwaves and stand up in the House of Commons and support the government, um, even when actually some of my colleagues haven't. So I think on most things, I am very supportive of, of the government. It's just there are one or two things where I I'm not, and, and I'm very clear about that. And I haven't suddenly become a rebel on everything. So I think my colleagues, you know, the current chief whip can be re reassured that I, I sort of pick my battles. Mm -hmm. And how do you think the the party's doing at the moment? Uh, in that there's this huge majority that you have, but it means that you have to keep hold together a voter coalition mm -hmm. of quite different groups. And it, this government is in midterm now. There have been things like the Owen Passers and vote, but just how, what's the feeling? We talk about this with MPs all the time, but what's your feeling about how the Conservatives are doing? Labour have felt like they've had a, mm -hmm. a better few weeks. What's your sense of that? Well, let, let me deal with th th those t two different things. I think on, on look, when you get to sort of midterm, which is kind of where we are, all, all governments have difficulties. I mean, I can remember, you know, the 2010 to 2015 when we were having to make very difficult decisions about public spending and, and priorities. It's difficult. Now, that position, we then recovered, fought an election which we then won a majority because we did have a, a central guiding focus, which was the long-term economic plan, which I think journalists got very, very bored, Conservative MPs saying it, but it was actually one of those few things that, although the public may not have looked at the detail, actually you got the words long-term economic plan actually repeated back to you on the doorstep. It actually got through to voters and they kind of knew what it was, which was getting the public finances under control, you know, living within your means. They kind of got that. So you had a sort of central purpose. And I think the, the, we, we had some very clear positions set out of the election. The thing that's been very difficult is obviously COVID completely for 18 months dominated the position. So I, I think what we've got to do now is get refocused on what are the things we want to have achieved by the time we get to the election. And it can't be everything. You, everything can't be a priority. We've got to decide what are the things we want to deliver. For me, we've got to make sure we've got a good economic argument and the public finances are under control and people can see that's going in the right direction and that people are comfortable about, you know, we've a huge amount of support we delivered during the pandemic, which I think people thank us for. I mean, my constituents absolutely recognise we saved thousands of jobs and thousands of businesses it, just in my patch and millions across the country by the economic support but people recognize that's got that's got some economic consequences so i think if we can refocus on some key deliverables and we get those delivered i think that'll be helpful on the labor party i think with the sort of reshuffle they've they clearly promoted some you know there's some some new talent People like Wes Streeting, I think, is, is very impressive, although I hope I haven't just messed up his career by saying that. 
But, you know, a lot of the people have come back. It's sort of, you know, it's a bit Ed Miliband's greatest hits, really. You know, and Yvette Cooper, for example, she's a very, she, she did a very good job, I think, as chair of the Home Affairs Committee. But, you know, I remember I was in the Home Office in between, uh, you know, for a couple of years in the 2010-2015 period, and she shadowed Theresa May and, and us, and she didn't give Theresa May much trouble, and I, I, I dealt with her quite a bit over the dispatch box, and she didn't give me much trouble either. So I, I wonder whether... There's perhaps a bit of, you know, the Ed Miliband's greatest hits and that sort of didn't end up well for him in 2015. So I think maybe Labour is upping its game a bit, but whether it's quite got to where it needs to get to to really compete, I'm, I'm not, not that sure. Thank you very much for having us in your lovely office and for your time. And if you've enjoyed that, please do check out the New Statesman online and on our YouTube channel. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, my colleague Stephen Bush, and our guest Mark Harper MP. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and Mae Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you for listening, and don't forget that you can check out our YouTube channel.